Put two people who disagree about housing in a room, and you might expect a fight. Of the divisive topics in San Francisco politics, land use and housing is literally like the most divisive, the third rail. That's Nadia Rahman. She's a self-employed consultant, as well as a political activist, and an advocate with Yimby Action, a yes-in-my-backyard group that advocates for the construction of more housing for all incomes. With the state kind of breathing down the neck of the planning department, it puts a lot of stress on these kinds of interactions. It forces the polarization of NIMBY versus YIMBY and all this stuff. This is Joseph Smook, also an organizer and advocate and co-founder of People Power Media. He works a lot with the Race and Equity in All Planning Coalition, a group trying to push the city to prioritize equitable development and affordable housing. These two don't really fit the yimby-nimby dichotomy, but they do have very different viewpoints about building housing. This was kind of a hard conversation to arrange. People don't want to talk about this. And to be honest, I was kind of nervous about what was going to happen when everybody sat down together and started talking. And yet, it turned out there's plenty that they do agree on. So it's been very refreshing. I'm Laura Wenis. This week finding common ground in the housing debate. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. Part of what we're trying to do with SF Next and with Fixing Our City is facilitate conversations about hard topics where all sides can find some common ground. Because that's where the real solutions are likely to come from, right? Nadia Rahman and Joseph Smook come at this topic very differently. But they agreed to sit down in the studio together when I framed this as not a debate, but a discussion, finding points of shared agreement. Before we even got to the differences of opinion, we found something we all have in common. We're all renters. Nadia was able to find a less expensive unit during the pandemic. Joseph rents an apartment from his dad, who has a three-unit property in the city. And I rent a relatively low-cost apartment I found through a friend. So, in a way, we're already coming at this with a shared perspective. I started with something I think everyone can agree on, both to start with common ground and to establish why this discussion matters. It's too expensive here. Would you both agree with that? Definitely, yes. Yes. Both of my guests agreed about why it matters so much that the city is unaffordable. Nadia called it a moral stain. And Joseph described it as a human rights issue. They related the cost of housing to homelessness and said it also affects the economic and racial diversity of the city. That San Francisco cannot live up to its sanctuary city open arms values if people can't afford to live here. And that it impairs the quality of life of workers who have to commute long distances, rent burdened tenants, and anyone who fears displacement. They both said they're equally worried about how the affordability crisis affects those who already live here and those who are hoping to move in. Okay, let's get into some things that I think maybe there's disagreement about. We agree it's too expensive. Why is that, according to you? Cliff's Notes version. Cliff's Notes version, we haven't built enough housing. It's led to our affordability crisis. It's led to our homelessness crisis. It's led to displacement. Cliff Notes version. I believe we haven't actually planned for or invested enough in actual true affordable housing. And I believe that we've spent too much of our kind of public resources in trying to enable the market to solve the problem of affordability without actually investing in real affordable housing strategies. Would you say we have enough market rate housing in San Francisco? That's that's hard to say because enough means that 
I mean, the housing demand or the housing need is dynamic and it's always changing. So I would never say that you can kind of put San Francisco in a snow globe and say, yeah, we've built enough. When you look at an urban environment, you have to understand its dynamism and how it grows and changes over time. Yeah, you can't just kind of wrap a ribbon around it and say, yeah, we built enough and now we're moving on and doing something else. Mm-hmm. In that case, are we finding more common ground here? We all agree San Francisco does not have enough housing. I would say that that's, I didn't say that San Francisco doesn't have enough housing. <laughs> oh, and I, well, I guess I didn't say that that San Francisco has enough housing, therefore our housing should be affordable. I guess I'm, I'm not understanding your follow-up question because equating supply and affordability to me, those are two different things. Okay. I'm just trying to clarify because it sounds like you were not going to go so far as to say, like, yes, we have enough housing. No. Okay. I'll just add a little bit of color to what I think about that. So I said no earlier. No, we're, we do not have enough housing. We're in a housing shortage. And my personal belief as a lead with the MV Action, this is also the Yimby purview, is that we need housing at all levels. So that's affordable housing, but social housing, that is also market rate housing. At this point, the conversation turned to something called RENA Goals. That's an acronym that stands for the Regional Housing Needs Allocation, which is a state-mandated assessment of how many units of housing at what levels of subsidy or market rate cities in every region ought to produce in order to have adequate housing. Cities incorporate those goals into their housing elements, the part of their general plans that governs residential construction. Those are revised every eight years. San Francisco has failed to reach its goals for producing below market rate housing while exceeding the RENA threshold for market rate housing. So, but you would say that we still need to build at all levels, despite, you know, that assessment. RENA is actually a floor. It's not a ceiling. And then a lot has also changed in that decade. A lot of people have moved here. The city has grown. Population has gone up. So... Despite reaching those RENA targets, we still haven't solved our crisis. And actually, so our new goals for the housing element is that San Francisco needs to build 82,000 units by 2031 or 2032. And that's like, I think, three to four times what the original RENA goals were that we have exceeded. I, I just did air quotes for people. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In case you couldn't hear them. <laughs> How do both of you think about those goals and the latest version of the goals for what we need to build? 82,000 units is a lot of dang units and we are not building that many. Would you agree with the state that we need to build that many units or more? Yes, <laughs> I think we need to build at least 82,000 units, but would like to see San Francisco build more than that. Yeah, so I'm going to challenge this conversation a little bit okay. by pushing back on one of the things that we found is that supply issues or whether we're building enough housing in general. Um, who's who's we when you say we, we found? We meaning, oh, sorry, this is through my work of people power media and research that we've done and the reporting that we've done around housing. Okay. Is it decoupling the conversation of supply from the conversation of affordability is really, really essential. The market does a really bad job. For-profit developers do a really bad job at actually providing affordability. Can we create an environment, a political environment, 
where it's easier for for-profit developers to build housing and provide more supply? Yeah, probably. And that's something that the state is coming down on San Francisco to do. Do I think that we need 82,000 units? I mean, I would say just from a personal perspective, no, we don't need to build 82,000 units. I mean, the dynamics of kind of the geography of work right now is under evaluation. As the framing for this conversation is how do we get to more affordability in San Francisco? From my perspective, from the perspective of the organizations that I work with, getting to greater affordability means a targeted approach to building affordable housing. Okay, I think that's the point of disagreement, right? Because you would probably argue that we, if we want to see affordability, we must build more. So these are points of agreement. You know, Joseph said the market does a bad job, developers do a bad job. From my perspective and the MB perspective is that the market has a role to play, developers have a role to play, but this entire system that we're talking about, and I'll bring it back to like developers have a role to play, it can't just be left up to developers. We need to build more affordable housing in San Francisco, and that's something that I agree on. So that means that subsidies need to come from the state government. It needs to be subsidized by the local government, and that needs to be intentionally built. The Gimby view is that rules and regulations should be set for the city, and then zoning should be specified with community input. And then based on those rules and regulations and zoning, projects can be built. Would you agree with that? Joseph? So definitely community input into establishing land use objectives or basically how our city develops is crucially important. So I'm glad that we agree on that because it's something that it's been hard to retain community input into decisions that are made about how the city's being developed. And I think that the state is having an increasingly kind of heavy hand in directing how the city develops. And that's been problematic. It's been a point of contention for communities. Um, Sorry, is that a point of agreement? So I think the point of agreement is that we believe that communities do need input where it's likely a point of (laughs) non-agreement is how often that opportunity exists and where it is in the process. Big reasons of what has held up housing production is how Byzantine our process is. Sometimes how community input can be weaponized to hold up projects. So it's having it at the right part of the process in order to make it fair. If those regulations exist, then like, why do we need to do like a project by project basis? Then the same rules should apply to each project. Yeah. So it, it sounds like that there's agreement that there does need to be community input in how communities are shaped. We don't yes. want just a top-down approach of like one size fits all from yes, the state coming definitely. in and saying everybody's got to build X at Y. But I think that Joseph, I want to give you a chance to to chime in with some specificity about your perspective here because I think the idea of you know not wanting project by project community input and and the idea of like weaponized community input is maybe something you want to respond to. Sure. So a couple of thoughts on the project by project input. So one of the ways that communities have found to be effective, exhausting, but effective to hold market rate developers to providing affordable housing that is actually affordable for communities, accountable has been to intervene in the approval process. He also says that communities he works with would love to have some predictability about whether developers are actually going to provide a level of affordable housing that they feel is beneficial to the community. Because fighting one project after another to get there 
is exhausting. One of the things I just want to bring into the space, so the Race and Equity and All Planning Coalition has been spending a lot of time with colleagues in New York City looking at the entitlement process or the process that developments go through to get their approvals from the city. And a couple of things that they do is, one is they retain community input on a development-by-development basis, but each step of that process has a time-limited duration to it so that it doesn't end up taking years like it does here. And so each process, even if there's controversy in each segment of that process, it's time-limited to a certain number of months. So developers know exactly how long, and the community does too, they know exactly how long each phase of that process takes. But so if there's a time limit, who decides? I mean, is that not just the state coming in and saying like, well, then if nobody can agree, we're just going to do it our way. It is up to the political bodies to do that. And generally they do take, you know, input from from the communities. But I mean, that's what happens here, too. It just can extend for years. (laughs) Do we agree on that? What's the point to agree on? That that same thing happens here, too, that ultimately like some government political body decides even if the controversy has just gone on for years. My understanding is that developers give up. Hmm. There's a tactic in politics that's like, if you can't kill something, then just delay, 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 delay until it dies. Hmm. That's, from my perspective, that's what happens in San Francisco. She mentioned a few things here that are unusual about San Francisco's system that essentially allow any individual person or group to hold up a project by raising an objection. If city oversight bodies take those cases, it can mean months of delay. A UC Berkeley Turner Center report looking at project timelines found that, on average, it took about four and a half years to go through the permitting process for a mid-size, completely affordable housing project. It was more than six and a half years for mixed-income projects and closer to four years for market-rate buildings. My guests agreed it takes too long to build affordable housing. They also agreed that some projects, market-rate or otherwise, die as a result of delay. It does happen. It's I would say that's not usually where communities like to go, at least not the groups that we work with, but it has been used for sure. But what I was trying to get at is a process where could still be community input in order to make sure that projects work for the needs of communities. So balancing the needs of developers and their business plan with the needs of communities and making that process more predictable which is something that we feel like New York seems to have done pretty well so that projects can move through the process and while retaining the the ability for communities to have that input. But who in the community gives that input? This is something we've touched on before on Fixing Our City, and it's another point of agreement between these guests. We'll get to that after a break. I've been talking with housing advocates Nadia Rahman and Joseph Smook about where they agree when it comes to housing policy, which is something they generally differ on. One view they have in common? Allowing communities to have input in how the city plans for housing in their neighborhoods is important. But public comment at long city hearings is not the way to get it effectively. You know, Laura, I had actually listened to an episode of this podcast with Robert Fruchtman where he actually did like a little bit of an overview of like what he runs into with community input. And one of the facts from that podcast that he shared that I found really interesting was that public comment often happens during times when lower income, middle income folks are like working 
it can also run for hours at these hearings. So not everybody can participate, especially if they have jobs or working multiple jobs. So per that podcast, wealthy, older, and white people are mostly the ones who turn out for public comment. And I think that's a consideration as well. Yeah, I I think that's a point of agreement among everybody. Public comment is not the vehicle (laughs) that is going to get the most community benefits out of anything, (laughs) housing or otherwise, because it takes forever, boring as hell. It's like, it's horrible. I think we all agree. Agree. Okay. <laughs> we cool. can agree. And I just want to add on that. Yeah. I know I'm not saying the New York City process you, is you're perfect. You're like the, the New York City proselytizer here. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's perfect, but it, but there are some aspects that actually address things that, you know, that I think we have agreement on, which is that there are community review board basically for, for projects. So so it is oh more God, you say review board and I'm like, oh, this is just adding more, I more know. of those panels. But there is a time limit to it. So okay. it actually they actually move through the process faster <laughs> and accomplishes some of the goals that Nadia was just talking about that I think we do all agree on is that we don't want just one particular demographic kind of holding sway over these processes. We'll leave open the question of do we need more market rate housing? How much more do we need exactly? But what about the affordable housing where like so the San Francisco has underproduced? I don't think that's in dispute, right? We're 100% aligned on that. Okay. Yeah. Right. So so how do we get more affordable housing? So one of the things that San Francisco's never actually done is just put together a list of sites that we want to buy and buy them. Who's we? The city? The city. Okay. So the housing element, which establishes the city's housing policies for the next eight years, there is a plan for meeting the 82,000 unit mandate from the state. But there's really not a plan for ensuring that we're going to meet our affordable housing goals. So quick caveat, though, there is a plan, but the state, to my knowledge, has told San Francisco, your plan is not going to work. So the plan overall, the state has commented that it doesn't work. What I'm saying is that there is really no affordable housing development plan in that document. Okay. The state didn't comment on that. The housing element draft mentions the phrase affordable housing more than a hundred times. I went through them. There's a lot of focus on finding money through bond measures, state funding, and finding private funders. San Francisco is going to be well short of its funding needs for all the affordable housing it's supposed to be building. But the plan also approaches this topic in pretty general terms. Put lower rent housing in neighborhoods with lots of resources. Change zoning to facilitate that. Work with land trusts. Buy up sites. What Joseph would like to see is a more specific plan with a list of parcels to buy because land is not going to get cheaper. But if we actually put together a plan of where we're going to buy those sites, count up the number of units and actually put together a plan where we can start to catch up on our affordable housing development goals. From my perspective, I think affordable housing can only be built in like about 20 percent of the city at this point. Because? Because of zoning. Uh Uh-huh. So a lot, a lot of the city is zoned for single-family homes. Actually, Joseph and I are both West Side residents, and I to produce 82,000 units by 2032, we're going to have to build on the West Side. I do think that what Joseph is proposing, like putting a plan together, is important. But I think with that plan for affordable housing, all of those things have to come into play. Zoning, streamlining the permitting, streamlining process, and like making it easier to build. 
So I guess, Joseph, I'll ask you, you were talking about putting affordable housing in all 11 supervisorial districts all over the city. So just to put it on the record, if someone went and proposed a 20 story, you know, affordable housing tower next door to you, you would be okay with this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we need to be. We we just went through this debate at twenty five fifty Irving Street in the sunset. It's not twenty stories; it's nine stories. But the discussion around that was so. It was so kind of demoralizing. I have to be honest. We were talking about the number of stories that that building was going to be, rather than talking about the opportunity that that was going to provide for families who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to be able to stay in the city. I guess the tougher hurdle to clear is how would your dad feel about it? <laughs> My dad would give it a big thumbs up. <laughs> okay. And Nadia, I'm guessing you're the same way. If someone proposed a big old affordable housing block next door to you, you'd be like, yes, now build it. Yes, bring it. Okay. <laughs> how do you convince someone in the marina, a property owner, that they should allow a 20-story tower of affordable housing to be built next door to them? It's tough. I mean, okay, so I'm not going to lie. I mean, the, the, even the discussion about converting an, a motel in the marina to supportive housing was a huge slog. Mm -hmm. uh, Booker T. Washington Community Center, which is in District 2, it's not in the marina. It's on the border of you know the Western Edition. But, man, neighbors fought. And, and that wasn't even a big building. That was actually just creating affordable housing on a site that had been a community center. Isn't that community input, though? It is communion, but that's a good that's a good point. But it comes back to what Nadia was bringing up earlier, which is: is it the entitled voices who are being protectionist and not allowing opportunity for other people? And that's the question. Yes, it's all community input. It's true. But we've if we're really going to commit to equity in the city, and that's what the city says. If we're really going to talk about equity, then that means making sure that people who have been dispossessed, who basically have not had a voice and have not had their needs met in the city, if their voices aren't heard in this process and considered as being, and those needs not considered as being paramount, then we're really not talking about equity. We're just talking about people who have had entitlement being able to basically further their entitlement at the expense of other people. And that's another point of agreement between us. If you proclaim that Black Lives Matter, if you proclaim you want equitable housing situations and people to be on par with you and have equal access to housing and opportunity, that means that you also acknowledge that a lot of the reason San Francisco's in the situation that it's in is that our zoning was racist and exclusionary, and it still is to this day. And then to answer your earlier question, Laura, about, you know, how do you convince the marina to, you know, install a 20-story building or whatever the example was exactly, I honestly think that my personal take on that is we just have to do it. And <laughs> Screw what they think. Just put it there. People will always fight it. They're not going to be convinced until it actually works out in their neighborhood and the sky doesn't fall and like their quality of life doesn't change and they're able to live side by side with these folks as neighbors. Like that's honestly my view. And I think a lot of what has held us back is that unfortunately, many of our elected leaders have not had the political will to do something to change the status quo that will piss people off, but it will set the precedent that we need to set in order to change things. This makes me wonder if we get the community input on the big high level plan rather than on the individual items that need to get pushed through for like incremental progress to be made. 
aren't you running the risk then of allowing certain neighborhoods and communities to advocate for themselves and and get their interests advanced? And if you're truly listening to all those communities and what they're advocating for, you end up with kind of the same silos that we have now. Sometimes it's a matter of how you ask the question. Mm -hmm. So I'm the president of the board of the South of Market Community Action Network. Okay. So one of the projects that we got pretty heavily involved in was the Central Soma Plan. Mm -hmm. The Central Soma Plan was a rezoning plan for an area that had been rezoned in the mid-2000s. And the way that the city proposed that rezoning was they wanted to create basically an office space and hotel plan for the central Soma area. When we went as community advocates to the meetings that planning was convening, there was mostly developers who were in those meetings and running those meetings. It was really hard to advocate for affordable housing. Okay, so if there was a process that was led by planning by saying, we have tens of thousands of affordable housing units that we need to build throughout the city, we're going to be convening community meetings to try to figure out how to build tens of thousands of affordable housing units throughout the city. It's a really different conversation starter than saying, we're going to be putting together an office tower and hotel plan. Can we get some input into that? Mm-hmm. So so I guess what I would challenge is that if we, if we approach community conversations, community planning conversations about land use and about how to solve problems of affordability in the city by saying, okay, everybody, we're going to roll up our sleeves and figure out where we're going to put some affordable housing in the marina or wherever. That then becomes what Nadia is suggesting, which is that's the point of reference for the conversation at that point. Nadia, I'll I'll kick it to you now. How do we keep, how do we preserve community input into high-level plans, but not allow communities to sort of like silo themselves or preserve themselves in amber? Yes, great question. From my perspective, I think community input is really important, but, you know, community input also needs to be taken with a grain of salt. So elected leaders, the the people who are in planning, they also have to bring some type of vision to what the city is going to look like. And a huge part of the reason we're where we are today in terms of the housing shortage, it's decade upon decade upon decade, like 50 years of really bad housing policy. So from my perspective, I think community input is a data point and an important data point. But we also have to remember people come to it with their own motivations. And basically, the folks that are making these decisions for what our city is going to look like in the future, they have to take a lot of data into consideration in order to come up with equitable and visionary solutions to meet our problems of tomorrow and in addition to solving our problems of today. We could have gone on like this for hours, I think. There's so much ground to cover. But here are my main takeaways. The big one, of course, is that nobody denies it's too expensive here and that has serious consequences. We didn't find agreement between these guests about how much market rate development the city should foster or what the role of the market is in addressing affordability. They both agreed more affordable housing must be constructed in San Francisco and that private developers are not the ones best positioned to do so. They agreed that to have any hope of reaching the goals the city has already adopted for building affordable housing, it ought to create a specific actionable plan. 
In doing so, government bodies should solicit community input and do that early on in the process of creating grand scheme plans so disagreements aren't sorted out in exhausting and repetitive battles over each individual building. And that we should have more conversations like this one, focused on finding common ground, not shouting over each other. We agree on the fact that San Francisco is unaffordable and that we need to figure out a way to get to affordability and being able to kind of frame that conversation in a way that we can agree on that and actually ha have a, a, an actual productive conversation about different ways of it being able to explore how to get there has been, been refreshing. So I just want to appreciate that. I appreciate Nadia as well, the conversation. Any final thoughts? I guess my final plea <laughs> for folks who are listening to this would be that, you know, if you're concerned about homelessness, if you're concerned about affordability, if you want to solve the problems that we see every day in our city and that we feel personally, you know, pay pay attention to these issues, learn more about housing. You know, it it seems like a lot, but, you know, I, I was actually like a neophyte with a lot of this three years ago and have learned a lot myself. And it just will give you the perspective that we need to solve the city's issues. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. And we want to check out your ideas. Do you have a solution you want the city to pursue? Know someone who's making a difference on an important issue. Send an email to sfnext.sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Next time on Fixing Our City. A lot of the heavy lifting behind our reporting on SF Next is based on data. Our data wizards talk about how they're going about answering your questions. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.